This is Mike Levitt. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible healthcare for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of healthcare. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to The Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Cleaver of the Institute for Advancing Health Value. The Institute is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating the industry to succeed in health value. Join Eric as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. Race to Value listeners, welcome to the show. We are talking this week about value-based change management and navigating that human side of healthcare economics. This is a people business and value-based care. Compassion is the currency. Empathy is the language. And every act of healing is a testament to the profound impact of human connection on the journey to well-being. It's all about purpose. It's all about passion and commitment to change lives. And I can't think of a leader more oriented towards that philosophy than Philip Eaves. Philip is the president and CEO of Ascension Seton ACO. He's also the vice president of population health at Ascension Texas. He's an accomplished, self-motivated, passionate leader. He has expertise in value-based healthcare operations, business development, strategy, employee development. We talk on the show about his personal story. We discuss how to work effectively as part of a collaborative leadership team to achieve goals, make healthcare more engaging, customer-centric experience, and also how to engage providers in that process. So with the Ascension Seton ACO, this is the largest clinically integrated network in Texas. They have over 3,600 providers. They're managing about 300,000 value-based lives. They had 24 million in savings in the last performance year in the Medicare Shared Savings Program. Philip is responsible for all the strategy and operations for the ACO. He's led different innovative initiatives like their direct-to-employer strategy. He's a change management professional. So you're going to hear a lot about what goes into effective change management and value-based care leadership. So let's now hear from Philip Eaves as he joins us this week in the Race to Value. Bill, welcome to the Race to Value, man. It's so great to have you on the show this week. I've been looking forward to it. Yeah, thank you, Eric. Definitely looking forward to uh, speaking with you today. Phil, I'd like to start our uh, conversation today with your personal why that informs your passion and commitment as a leader in value-based care. As I understand, you came from humble beginnings in East Texas. Your dad worked as a prison chaplain. Your mom was a school teacher. In the small town where you grew up, the petrochemical industry was the primary employer. You weren't necessarily oriented towards a career as a healthcare executive. However, having that modest upbringing really provided you with that meaning and sense of purpose to help others. And I'm just really inspired by how you were able to find purpose in life while navigating some of the challenges in those formative years, despite that prevailing logic that you would follow that more conventional path that many others followed in your community. You really had the strength and resilience and purpose of mind to blaze a path as a professional yeah, as a leader in healthcare, and I'm a firm believer that truly knowing oneself is the greatest determinant in fueling personal ambition and guiding a life that's filled with purpose and humility and authenticity. And that really resonates with me also because I have a similar upbringing growing up in Central Texas. I was the first person in my family to go to college, and that really allowed me the opportunity to cultivate my own gifts and service to others. And I just think about that Albert Einstein quote, only a life lived for others is a life worthwhile. And I think you and I would agree that's absolutely true. As we start our conversation today, I, I just wanted to see if you could share a little bit about your personal story and how you got involved in healthcare leadership 
And in terms of value-based care, what is it about that opportunity for transformation that's most exciting to you and connects with your purpose and meaning? Yeah. So yeah, happy to jump in here on this one. So first of all, I would say, as you mentioned, I, I grew up in a little town in East Texas, or maybe more appropriately, uh, Southeast Texas. So it was called Orange, Texas, and uh, very much focused on um, refineries and chemical plants. And that's primarily what people did whenever they graduated high school or sometimes college was get a good job in a refinery, make some money, and that's what you do with your life. And nothing wrong with that path, but that's obviously not the path that I wanted to go down. And my dad was, and actually still is today, a uh, prison chaplain. And my mom was a teacher most of my life growing up. And we didn't have much. And they did whatever they could to pull together the funds to send us to private school, a lot of scholarships. My dad was the basketball coach. My mom worked at the school. So we had different funding resources there that gave us a little bit of a discount, but anything they could do to get us a good education that was important to them and everything that my brothers and I had, we really had to earn. And so they really taught us a really strong work ethic when we were kids. And that was instilled in us from when we were little, we were always outside working with my dad, doing things around the house and just learning as much as possible. And then my dad, on top of that, was just a very humble individual. He spent some time when we were kids. He had a street ministry actually in downtown Beaumont. And we worked a lot with the homeless, a lot of people in halfway houses, just a lot of people on the streets. And my mom would teach him how to read and write. My dad obviously ministered to them. And we grew up around a lot of that as a kid. And my dad would even, at one point, I never forget, he came home and my mom said, where are your shoes, Mike? And he said, I was out talking to a guy and he didn't have shoes. So I just took my shoes off and gave them to him. And those were his favorite boots. And my mom got onto him. I remember hearing this story, but long story short, that's the beginning that I really came from. And it really shaped the way that I just view life. It's all about helping others, putting others first. And I think when you think about just the industry we're in healthcare, that's what most people get in healthcare for. Whether you're a physician, you're a clinician, it's about serving others. It's about helping people with some of the challenges they might be dealing with in their life physically and also mentally. And one of the beauties with value-based care is we're only making that better. So just a little bit of background there is I started off in healthcare more or less in occupational medicine. So I was actually working in OSHA safety and I had an opportunity to work in a occupational medicine clinic and took that job. And about a year later, I was actually managing the clinic and, and as the practice manager and then building relationships with employers and worked my way up that path at Christus Health. And then from there got pulled over to Memorial Hermann in Houston, Texas, and worked for the chief strategy officer. Uh, it was really three of us on this team. It was a guy named Ken, a, a lady named Ellie, and myself. And we developed the whole direct-to-employer program uh, at Memorial Hermann and really focused on ways to drive healthcare costs down. And um, a lot of my experience in that arena really started in the occupational medicine arena and just expanded and um, spent some time there, really enjoyed that work, gave me a different perspective because I connected them with the buyers of healthcare. And then from there, worked for some startups and then eventually was recruited into Ascension. And when I came to Ascension, was on the national employer solutions team and we were working with some of the largest employers in the world, crafting the same type of those solutions, focused on driving costs, improving quality, improving outcomes. And then slowly was asked to take over the accountable care organization here at Ascension, Texas, and been doing that for two years. And all of that kind of ties back into just my upbringing, really focused on helping others. And I believe that what I do on a daily basis and what my team does, you know, at the end of the day, there's a life on the other end of that phone or in that clinic that physician's managing, and we're doing everything we can to help enable the providers in that clinic so they can build those relationships and really focus on, I would say, life change. And that's what really gets me up in the morning. 
Phil, I, I really appreciate you sharing your background and uh, your passion for value-based care. And we're going to talk here in a little bit about value-based care strategy, but the underpinnings are really that manifestation of altruism when helping others and realizing the intrinsic worth of each life as a guiding force to, to help providers deliver compassion and, and effective care. Your story is really inspiring. I, I share a lot of things in common with you in that regard. And so now you're working at Ascension. You started with that opportunity as a leader of the Ascension seat in ACO about two years ago. And as the president and CEO of the ACO, you're responsible for leading the largest clinically integrated network in Central Texas. You have about 3,600 providers who manage over 200,000 lives and value-based arrangements. The value journey for Ascension Seton goes all the way back you know, to the early days of the Pioneer ACO program. And the ACO is now participating in the Medicare Shared Savings Program, where last year it was ranked in the top 7% of all ACOs in the country, having saved $24 million on over 23,000 beneficiaries. And overall, the ACO achieved about $25 million in revenue through Medicare and uh, commercial value-based contracts last year. But I know that outstanding result certainly didn't happen overnight. And ACO has a clear history of progressive performance improvement. You have highly engaged practices and providers that are part of your network. I've seen that firsthand a few months ago as you uh, were gracious enough to invite me to your annual physician symposium. And I saw how the, the ACO is really making a demonstrable impact on engaging the providers and you know driving down those hospital readmissions and ED utilization. And so I wanted to ask you about your population health playbook a little bit. How does that drive performance success? I'd love for you to share some of your secret sauce with our audience. As a ACO leader, what do you see as the main levers for transformation? And what are you focusing on in the execution of your operational model to improve physician engagement and population health outcomes and economics and ultimately the quality of care provided to patients? Yeah, so where I would start with that, number one, We've been doing this for quite some time. I, we've been in the ACO space for, I guess, a little over 10 years now. We have some amazing partners. So I'll start off by saying that Austin Regional Clinic is the largest primary care provider here and on their part of the ACO. Also, Capital Medical Clinic is another strong partner that's really developed some great processes within their clinics in order to manage populations. But where I would say all of this really starts is it really starts with the physician. And so we have to get the physician engaged in the work, right? The physician is the key. And so incentivizing that provider through some payment mechanism to get them engaged is really one of the first things that we do. And, and some of our partners, almost all of our partners do that pretty well, and that really gets their interest and then really teaching them, if you do this work, not only are you able to really get better outcomes within the population that you manage, but hopefully you're able to shift over time from this kind of machine that we live in here in healthcare in the United States and being able to spend a little bit more time with patients, have more meaningful conversations with patients and get them the resources they need in order to actively take ownership of their own health. So I would say number one, getting the physicians engaged in the work. I think that is key to all of this. And then once we get them engaged, there are obviously areas that we focus on. And a lot of this focus really starts with practice transformation is what I would say. And I'll talk through a little bit of this and we can even break down a little bit about the different populations we do manage. But starting with practice transformation, there's a few areas that we try to focus on. We want to, first of all, make sure that the clinics that are a part of the ACO or any of our value-based arrangements are obviously producing um, their annual wellness, is, you know, their AWVs. So we help them develop those processes to make sure that they're having that visit once a year with patients. That obviously helps with attribution, but it also helps them focus on prevention. It helps them identify any possible health concerns. It helps them get the diagnoses correct when the patients walk through the door. So there's a big focus on AWVs. 
and really building a process within a clinic to target those AWVs and get those patients in on an annual uh, basis. Also, HCC recapture. That's another area that we focus on um, as well. And a lot of that goes through just education with the providers. We have a target this year for one of our ACOs that's uh, 85% uh, for the HCC recapture, which I think is pretty standard um, across most H uh, ACOs um, in the country. But really getting in, educating those doctors, uh, making sure that they are, are, are capturing everything, uh, because obviously that helps with the RAF score at the end of the day. So those are just some of the basic table stakes that we focus on. Additionally, care management. We've had a care management here, team here at the ACO that's been centralized for years. And then some of the practices have done their own care management as well. But what we're really trying to shift toward is getting each one of the practices that participate in our value-based arrangements to get to a point where they stand up their own care management teams that are embedded in their practices. Because there's about 5%, I believe the, the statistic is about 5% of the population spends about maybe roughly 60% of the healthcare dollars. So that team is really going in they are engaging with those individuals that are the high spenders using our data analytics software. So we do uh, empower those people with that um, to really go in, look at patients that have a MARA score over 3.5 or higher, and then really working with those patients with multiple chronic diseases that fall in that high risk category or those rising risk categories. And then once we get them engaged and enrolled, it's really using motivational interviewing techniques, one-on-one -on -one coaching, and really working with those individuals that are either spending a lot of the dollars today or will be spending the dollars in the future that really drive spend up. So I'd say that's another core component that we focus on. And we're trying to educate the practices on really being able to stand some of those resources up themselves. If you get into quality, obviously, Quality metrics are part of every value-based program. And so we have a quality team here. They meet with the practices on a regular basis. They're tracking quality throughout the year. I'm really moving the needle just on those numbers through various campaigns that we run with those practices that are more targeted. Additionally, we're getting those quality nurses to a place where they're focusing on true performance improvement. So for example, we have a practice that's identified that they need to do a better job of recapturing or capturing their depression screenings when patients come through. So we're going in and helping them build a process around that. So that's some of what the quality nurses do. Post-acute network, we've had a network here for years. The network needs to be refined a little bit. So coming up in this new year, we're going to refine that network, start using more analytics, bring in a, a software to help us better track quality and outcomes within the LTAC and also the SNF facilities as well. So we can refine that network and say, who are the preferred partners? And then last but not least, what I would say is one of the secret sauces, the performance within our ACO is one of our largest partners here in Austin has designed a really effective after hours program. And so they're open seven days a week. They're open late into the night. They're even open Christmas Day this year, and we've helped get other providers to refer their patients to that after-hours program to make sure that people are not going to the ER unless they need to go there. So that really helps with avoidable ED, and it helps with overall ED utilization, and then hopefully gets them an appointment back with their physician once they visit that clinic in the after hours program. But I would say those are our, really our main areas of focus. Our clinics have been doing this work for many years. They've developed many processes around each one of these and just focusing on this on a continuous basis, I think has really gotten us to where we need to be. Phil, thanks for sharing that. Those are so many great interventions that are taking place, and certainly you're getting the fruit of that labor in terms of driving improved performance outcomes. There's so many impacts being made on patients. This work, as we talked about with Ascension Seton Health Alliance, 
in value-based care has been going on for quite some time. But what worked in the early days of the ACO doesn't necessarily apply in the modern day. You mentioned a lot of innovations that you're bringing on, things that are coming online, new programs and interventions that, that you're implementing. And I was just thinking at some point in the life cycle of every business, you do reach an inflection point for change where there's a realization that adaptation and innovation are not merely choices, but they're imperatives to have that sustained level of growth and, and relevance, especially in healthcare and in Austin, Texas, which is an ever-evolving marketplace. And during your tenure as president and CEO of the Ascension Seton Health Alliance, you've led organizational change management to improve team culture. You've reinvented the business model. Consequently, this has led to the development of a stronger value proposition for your providers. It's resulted in higher levels of engagement and adoption of value-based care. And there's been a, a strong pivot, as I understand, from having a heavily concentrated portfolio of commercial contracts with limited focus on Medicare to now shifting that focus more towards senior lives and in, in, in your population health model. I read that book, Leading Change by John Cotter in grad school, and he talked about the leadership that's needed for effective change management. And I remember him describing how management makes a system work and it helps you do what you know how to do, but it's the leadership that builds the systems and transforms old ones. So just in the spirit of change management and some of the work that you've done as the leader in the ACO, I'd love for you to describe some of the changes that have happened over the years with the ACO. And as a leader also, how are some of your strategies for effective change management being incorporated to institutionalize those new approaches to population health management? Yeah. So as you mentioned, healthcare is constantly changing and it's constantly evolving and we have to evolve um, alongside it. I, I think in the Ascension Seton Health Alliance, we definitely have been in an inflection point. And, and that's really when I stepped in, I knew that there were some things that we would need to do differently and change isn't easy. And, and I can walk through a little bit of that process in a minute, but at the end of the day, you're changing people's minds, right? And you have to get people on board with those changes if you truly are going to see them through. And as you mentioned, we were primarily focused on commercial contracts. If your audience is familiar with commercial value-based agreements, they're all over the board. The metrics are all over the board. Sometimes you question that the contract is really more in favor of the payer than the provider. And, and so there's a lot of challenges there. And we were starting to see some of those funds, those shared savings start to dry up, which really just diminished our value proposition back to the providers. What we really wanted to do was to figure out how do we stay relevant to the provider community? How do we keep them engaged in this work? And how do we continue to enable them um, to be successful uh, in the future? There's some change, met, uh, change management methodology that I utilize every time I do this type of work. And I would just say that's been a lot of my career is stepping in and either taking something that needs to be fixed and fixing it or, or really building something from scratch. But I always go back to two things. Number one, realizing that change takes time, right? And if you're familiar with the Kubler-Ross change curve, that's what really shows what your team or the stakeholders morale will look like over time. And you go first go through a stage of shock, and then you move into denial, frustration, potentially depression. Then you start experimenting with new things, and then you make a decision that change needs to occur. And then you start really integrating that within your processes. And, and that's really what the team and everybody that experiences change within an organization really goes through as far as morale. And that takes time. The second thing that I always utilize, as you mentioned, John P. Cotter, he wrote an article in the Harvard Business Review called Leading Change. And that's an article that I've always reflected back on. I try to incorporate a lot of his thoughts and how we roll this out. You've got to create a sense of urgency. And so when I stepped in, uh, my leadership team and I, we really fully evaluated the situation here. 
and uh, saw what direction the market was going. We saw where the opportunity was and we saw, say, opportunity, let's say revenue opportunity for providers. And then we painted a clear picture as to where we were. And we started communicating that to the team here at the ACO and also to our board members to clearly articulate this is what's going on in the world around us. There's a lot of private equity. There's a lot of investment in value-based care. And either we are going to make a shift to make sure that we stay relevant or we might have some challenges. And so we created that sense of urgency we started to form really a coalition of people that were on board with some of the changes that we needed to make and really that new strategic direction. When you form that coalition, every once in a while, some people might drop off your team and other people might join. And we had a little bit of that, but we're at a very stable point now where we have some individuals on our leadership team that perform at a very high level and they're very on board with the work um, that we're doing in the direction we're going. And I would say that is really the entire ACO team here at Seton. So that that took some time to get there and really crafting a vision as well, as far as where we go, we incorporated that and communicating that vision on a consistent basis because people need to understand how their work ties into that vision. Where are you going? And then what am I doing to impact that? So we did a lot of that. And then from there, really gathering some short-term wins around some projects, start seeing some success, continuing to communicate that vision, and then start rolling out some of the new processes and some of that change management that allows us to be successful. And so that being said, what we did, we took the Seton Health Alliance and we started looking at how do we get more into Medicare? And, and I'll talk about some of our new partnerships in a little bit but we essentially have partnered with some organization, Signify Health, which is now CVS, to stand up a second ACO. And that second ACO is taking a group of provider partners that have not participated in Medicare value-based arrangements in the past and really taking them and developing some of those muscles that will make them successful. And so that's been a big shift. Another one has been around Medicare Advantage. Uh, we'll be rolling out one of our first Medicare Advantage contracts in the next few months. So we're looking forward to that. And then also standing up some direct to employer products as well. About a year ago, we decided to stand up a product in the marketplace with a handful of TPAs that allows employers to purchase our clinically integrated network directly. And we believe that's been something that's been very attractive for employers, but also for providers in the community as well. So those are just some of the basic initiatives that we've done outside of just redesigning a lot of workflows, restructuring teams, and just moving us to a new place as an ACO. Phil, I'd love to learn more about your direct-to-employer initiative. As we're thinking about effective change management, there's not a more compelling reason to evolve than in the self-insured uh, health insurance market. Direct contracting between employers and providers is growing in the insurance world, and, and for, it's all it's for the, all the obvious reasons. Employers are spending at a national level about eight hundred and eighty billion dollars in premium dollars in the aggregate. Commercial insurance costs are increasing at four times the rate of other benchmark goods and services. And in addition to that premium spend, employers are seeing that the poor health of their employees is also costing them hundreds of billions of dollars nationally. And the health system, just quite frankly, is, isn't delivering effectively the care that improves population health through prevention and effective disease management in the, in the commercial uh, market. And, and to make matters worse, employers are realizing that they're spotting the margin for hospitals by subsidizing the losses that hospitals incur on the public uh, pay side. So there's this whole mix of financial toxicity in the employer-sponsored health insurance market, it's certainly a great opportunity for a clinically integrated network like yours. And I know you've led that that new initiative in launching a direct-to-employer narrow network product. Uh, you're working with large employers in the Central Texas region, including Whole Foods. So I, I Phil, I'd love if you could explain your push into 
the direct to employer space and how you've been able to utilize the infrastructure of the CIN to address those pain points of cost while also focusing on population health. And, and also, how does your value-based model work to align incentives between the people that buy the care to the people that provide the care? Yeah, employers are looking for solutions to drive down the cost of healthcare. I think we all know that. I think there's a pretty big frustration within the employer segment around just that line item on their budget that's called healthcare and benefits. They they know that they need to provide benefits to their population, but it's just a expense that is honestly out of control. And it's hard to figure out how do you address that? Because they're getting a lot of the same solutions in front of them every year from their brokers or every few years when they go out for bid and um, they're looking for something new. And so a lot of this is really focused around value proposition design. I've focused a lot on the employer population throughout my career, understanding what their pain points are and what potential gains they might be able to achieve that maybe they don't even realize today. And so what we did here is we've got hospitals, we've got a network of 3,600 providers. If you are an employer that is primarily located in central Texas, we have the network adequacy to provide you with a product. And so we have partnered directly with um, a handful of TPAs, Web TPAs, one, HPI is another, give an example, where they're the groups that process the claims for us. And we utilize our clinical integrated network of providers and hospitals as that primary network. And then we usually wrap it with another insurance product in case people go outside of our go outside of our geographic footprint so they still have access. This has worked really well because up front they get a little bit of a discount on the inpatient side, which makes it attractive, but they're utilizing the infrastructure of the clinically integrated network. So our care management team, our data analytics platform, we are using a lot of the same processes that we've set up for our other value-based products to manage this population. And so it fits in really well. And providers really like this because they know that they're going to get paid and they're going to get paid. We're not asking providers to take a cut on that reimbursement. And then they're not getting a bunch of claims denied like you see through many of the large insurance carriers. So it's something that's very attractive. And we're using local care management from the ACO team to manage those populations. And we're sitting in front of the providers and talking through results and really pushing along just the value-based care initiatives that we have through our population health program. So it's really working well. The other component of it that I think is pretty neat is we try to push more towards transparent PBMs. We know that pharmacy is a big expenditure in this country. And so there are a handful of transparent PBMs that work with some of our clients. Whole Foods has used one for years. Here's a, a few names or TrueScripts, SmithRx. Those are a handful that you might be familiar with, but I think that helps as well because they're moving away from marking up drugs and that immediately reduces some cost out the gate. And what we've seen with some of the larger populations where we've done this for a few years now, is not only did we lower their healthcare expense right out the gate, but we've been able to keep it down over the years that we've managed their populations. So Whole Foods was our first, seen a lot of success there, and we've opened this up to other employers this past year, and it's starting to sell in the marketplace. And sometimes it's offered as a full replacement, sometimes it's a side-by-side -side offering, and then potentially it could be a tiered offering. So those are the way that it's really pitched and the way that employers are purchasing it. Phil, that's outstanding work and certainly the recognition of an opportunity to, to solve some of those pain points for employers. I, I love the innovation that, that you're uh, doing in the ACO. You mentioned earlier the, par the partnership with Signify Health and CVS. I wanted to ask you about that as well. CVS completed the acquisition of Signify Health in early 2023. 
it's now a combined company. And I know they're out there working to partner with health systems like yours and affiliated physicians to improve care delivery and lower costs and improve lower improve levels of engagement and really enable broad access to, to high quality care. And you mentioned earlier that this partnership is linked to the creation of a new ACO in the Medicare Shared Savings Program. Uh, it operates in tandem with your flagship ACO. I, I know there's a heavy focus on practice transformation in this partnership. Could you discuss the strategy for forging this new partnership with Signify and CVS? And how is that partnership providing your network with the additional resources that are needed for practice transformation? Yeah. What I mentioned earlier, when I stepped into the ACO, we knew that we needed to shift more in Medicare. We needed to provide more Medicare opportunities for the providers within our clinically integrated network. And, and ultimately, we only had a handful of practices that were even a part of the existing Ascension Seton ACO. So most of our practices weren't engaging in any Medicare work with us. They were just primarily a part of our commercial contracts. And we need, we knew we needed to solve for that if we really wanted to have a strong value proposition for the providers and really generate true revenue that's meaningful for their practice. So when we started to explore how we go about doing that, we went through this process of buy versus build and to determine, is this something that we do by ourselves? And if so, we will probably need more resources, or do we potentially partner with a value-based partner in the marketplace that could potentially bring some of those resources to the table? Because a lot of these practices, like I mentioned, haven't been doing this work with the Medicare population. And that's really where you develop the muscles around value-based care is managing the Medicare population. And so we knew that there would be a lot of work there. And so we went down a path of making a decision on if we want to essentially create this ACO internally and run two ACOs, or do we want to partner with somebody? Well, Phil, it sounds like the opportunity for a, a great relationship to, to really bring these practices along and crank on some of the heavy lifting and the development of care delivery infrastructure to really succeed in managing senior lives. I'm excited to hear about this new partnership. And you got me thinking about the need for capital investment. This comes up a lot with our guests on the podcast. If you're, you have to access capital to, to catalyze value transformation. And, and I'd love to hear more of your views on accessing capital within a landscape where there's mass provider consolidation. We've seen PE acquisitions of physician practices that are increasing. There's been a six-fold increase of that uh, activity in the last decade. Independent providers who are not employed, they're struggling to keep their practices open. They're seeing constant decline of their profit margin. I, and I'm not even sure if the market consolidation it will actually demonstrate a lower total cost of care, but practices that are wanting to get into value-based care, they have to access capital somewhere. And value-based care is clearly the pathway to sustainability, but developing that effective infrastructure for population health, like what you're talking about, it's just so capital intensive. I've read projections like the average cost of an ACO, it's nearly $2 million. You need about a half a million startup investment costs, and then the remainder goes in the annual operating costs. That's just the average. With those fixed startup costs, there's a multi-year lag between startup and earnings. There's possibility of failure. You have to make this transition, and you have to do it through a calculus of risk and reward, and you really need sound decision-making. You mentioned earlier, as you were thinking about your partnership with Signify and CVS, leading up to that, you had to consider the buy versus build versus partner strategy. And so I wanted to see if you could elaborate a little bit on that in terms of our listeners out there. Many of them are leading ACOs. What would you tell them in terms of how to best navigate the transition and realize better outcomes and produce overall savings by finding creative partnerships and innovative ways to access capital. Yeah. So what I would first say to your point, financial resources are a challenge. Right now, if you look at hospital systems, a lot of the national hospital systems are 
they're not turning profits right now. And a lot of that's due to inflation, staffing cost, and honestly, just a shift of volume from the inpatient setting to the outpatient setting. So a lot of the volume is being shifted outside of the four walls of the hospital. And that's where they traditionally have made a lot of their money. So there's those challenges for the health system, which many times are the ones that are funding the resources around ACOs. And then if you look at the primary care practices, they're having a challenge keeping their doors open. And there's always this thought in the back of their mind, do we sell their sell our practice and start working for somebody else? Or do we continue to struggle and, and try to figure out how to build a business model that's sustainable? And so that's the reality of where we are right now. And being the leader of an ACO that's tied to a large health system, we had some challenges around getting the resources we needed in order to stand up and manage a second ACO for a group of providers that maybe needed a little bit more attention than our existing ACO, which performs very well. So that really kind of navigated us more toward what would a buy versus build scenario look and really start walking down that path and how we got to a decision, which obviously was to buy is what I would say, or we could say partner, is we really started off with cultural fit. We're a faith-based institution who is primarily focused on the poor and the vulnerable. And so whoever we partner with has to understand that. We have to have some good rapport. There has to be just a good cultural fit between the two organizations. And I don't think sometimes that a nonprofit like us, maybe necessarily fits with a fast moving startup either. So we really did an evaluation through an RFP process to decide, first of all, who would be a good cultural fit. And we obviously liked a few things about one of the organizations that we thought would fit us well. We looked at their value proposition and do they truly address the pain points that we're dealing with, not only as a clinically integrated network, but as a health system. And do they understand our position as a health system and what's important to us? Because, hey, we are managing hospitals. So there is some thought there. And I would say one of the partners, which we'll talk about in a minute, stood out very well because they had a history in partnering with health systems. They knew what was important to us and their value proposition around their product addressed our pain points as a health system and as a CIN. Also, just understanding, can we honestly operationalize their model here within some of the red tape that we have as being a large organization? Some of the value-based enablement partners have a very strict way of doing things, and that's been proven to produce great results. But when you're a part of a large health system and you're not an independent practice, it's a little bit more challenging to do everything the exact same way that the partner might recommend. So we needed someone that would really meet us where we were because we have employed providers, right? And there's a little bit more red tape around those processes and workflows in those clinics than maybe what an independent would have. And so we needed someone that would meet us where the independents are and where the employed providers are. And then the other things I would say you need to consider is how does that partner get paid? How are they taking a cut? How does their business model work? Many times they'll take a portion of the shared savings. And so obviously you got to take that in consideration when you do this potential partnership. And then also what resources are they providing? We knew that practice transformation and really boots on the ground within these clinics and this new ACO was very important. And we chose the partner that would give us those FTEs to help us perform that work within those clinics to help at the point of care. And then last but not least, like how are they handling risk? We wanted to navigate toward risk as soon as possible, but we realized we had some muscles to develop within these practices. Many of the partners out there or potential partners will take that risk on for you. So I think that's part of the equation, something you've got to consider. And if you are an ACO or a clinically integrated network, I'll say, you have a lot of negotiating power because you bring a lot of physicians to the table. And so 
We ended up choosing Signify, which is now CVS Health. We have a real level of comfort with these guys. They have great leadership. They have a proven track record. They work well with health systems, met a lot of their clients, and they were a, a obvious choice um, for us. And um, now we are um, a community um, of um, a handful of providers that are in one of their larger ACOs. And so we have two paths. We have the one that's been operating for many years, with the, which is the Ascension Seaton ACO that we manage. And then we have the Signify CVS ACO, um, which is um, comprised of some groups that are maybe a little bit newer at this, but I think that they'll get there pretty quick. And we're super excited about that work. And that that right there really shifted the strategic direction of all of our work because we plan on growing that. And I think that's a new value proposition that the Ascension Seaton Health Alliance provides to providers that we haven't in the past. Well, thanks, Phil, for that update. And we've talked so much about change management and how that's married to strategy and culture and leadership. I've really enjoyed our conversation over this last hour. I thought we would wrap up our conversation by talking a little bit about the future since we, we've hit on change management so much. We're in an industry right now that's dealing with the culmination of all these global and dispassionate macroeconomic forces. It's forcing us to, to rethink care delivery. It's reshaping industry. I, I love quotes. And there was that one that JFK once said about change is the law of life. And those who look only to the past or present are certain to miss the future. And if we think about healthcare, change is the only constant. With an effective change management st uh, strategy, a leader in value-based care, they can become an agent for positive change instead of a victim of circumstance. So I'd love to get your parting thoughts on the importance of leadership in this emerging era of transformation in our industry. How can we be the change we want to see in that world of healthcare by creating a system we could actually be proud of instead of uh, dealing with the alternative, which is that the suffocation of being in a broken fee-for-service system that's clearly unsustainable. I'd, I'd love to get your thoughts about this, especially as we're in this new year and we're thinking about this, this upcoming future going forward. Yeah, so I would first of all say that in healthcare, we need leaders who aren't afraid to lead and also drive change. Individuals who are okay with standing up and speaking out. Healthcare is a complicated industry with many different stakeholders. And let's be honest with ourselves, these many of the stakeholders have different interests, right? And, and some of those interests don't align with each other. And so leaders in this space need to be willing to have tough conversations when needed, but they also need to remember that we're trying to build bridges and bring everyone along for the ride and bring everybody together. Ultimately, there is a life like I mentioned earlier on the other end of that business transaction. And that's what's most important to realize. We're in the people business. And so everything that we do can't just be focused around the dollars and cents. They have to be what's best for the patient. And so I, I think if we, if we really focus on that and we put that at the core and really at the center of how we operate and conduct business on a daily basis, then I think that's a good thing. And, and those are the type of leaders that we need, ones that remember why they are in this business to begin with and really stay true to that. And also what I would like to say is just in general in the United States, there's so much good here. And healthcare is not an exception uh, to that statement. People travel from around the world to access healthcare in the U.S. I, when I spent time in Houston, I, I saw so much of that. And we need to be proud of that. Now, making that statement doesn't ignore the fact that we need change in the system because we do. Costs are out of control and we aren't seeing the outcomes that we're paying for, essentially. And so I am very hopeful for the future of healthcare in this country. We are witnessing a lot of change occur across the industry right now. And we need to continue to push that change along and push it along more rapidly. As I mentioned earlier, patients, providers, 
care teams at the core. That's what's important. It's that patient provider care team relationship. That's where the life change really occurs is between that patient and that team and that provider. And that's what needs to be the center of all that we do. And I think if we promote that, if the changes we make and really enable that and allow the physician and care team to do what they need to do to manage that patient, to get them to a better place in their life, then I think we're doing good. And that's what really excites me every day. And that's really what drives a lot of my purpose here. That's well said, Phil. And I love how we, in this last hour, we came full circle when discussing the the human side of healthcare, the strategy, the economics, the change management, the payment models, the partnerships, the access to capital, and then ultimately bringing it home to how this is a people business. Every interaction in healthcare, it's a testament to our commitment to the well-being of others. And it's not just about healing bodies. It's about understanding hearts, fostering trust, creating a compassionate alliance where the pursuit of health is a shared journey and every person counts and creating that chapter and building a narrative of comprehensive and compassionate care. It sounds like you're doing just such incredible work. I'm honored to have you share your story with our listeners on the Race to Value. It has been an absolute pleasure being with you this week on the show, Phil. Thank you so much, Eric, for having me. Truly a pleasure. And it's really uh, enjoyable to hear this podcast on a regular basis. You guys have interviewed some great people and just happy to be a part of it. Oh, thanks, my friend. We appreciate that support. And I hope that you can come on again at some point and talk about the all the future innovations that, that you're doing. But certainly eyes are on Seton Ascension ACO. And we're excited to see where the future takes you and the organization in the years to come. Thank you.